0: Oh, don't cry, and don't sigh, try again,
1: though the odds are a hundred to ten. That was Dean Martin dispensing one of life's great truths, it is never too late to try again. Martin's eclectic life experience proves that there is always a chance to reinvent yourself. The man pivoted through careers like songs in his catalog. Bullet points on his impressive resume include boxer, bootlegger, professional gambler, dynamic comedian, chalk-topping singer powerful enough to dethrone the Beatles, and even a heist member of Ocean's Eleven. He more than earned the title, King of Cool. Yet, I'm not convinced that is how most people remember old Dino. Identity is a nebulous thing. History can flatten a career as expansive and celebrated as Martin's into a singular moment. Streaming data suggests that younger generations have shrunk Martin from a cultural icon to one-hit wonder. At still gets a good song out of it.
0: And since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow.
1: Hidden under a holiday setting, glimmers of Martin's boozy lover-man persona still shines through on the record. The Christmas perennial ensures that, for at least one month a year, his name will carry on. That is much better than most of us will ever get. As good as Let It Snow is, this episode is not going to rehash Christmas carols you've surely heard a million times before. As we mentioned in our previous episode, we're ringing out the new year. This is our first broadcast of 2022. Many people mark the changes of the calendar with a change in themselves. This week we'll highlight some fascinating people who refuse to stick to any one path. It's hard to pin down these folks into any particular identity. Before we go forward, we need to admit an early episode. Last week, we acknowledged some of the talented musicians who passed away in 2021. With a blurry of names that accomplished, it's understandable how a lesser-known soul would go unmentioned. We're going to rectify that oversight this week of a person whose name might not be that familiar but whose life story is something everyone should aspire to. Inge Ginsberg was born in Austria-Vienna in 1922 as the only daughter of an affluent Jewish family. In 1938, fear of the encroaching Nazi government forced her and her family to flee to the homeland. In 1942, her family was ripped apart. Her father, Fritz Neufeld, was transported to the Dachau concentration camp. It almost assuredly would have been a death sentence, if not for his daughter's amazing bravery. The 20-year-old Ginsburg walked right up to the doors of Infamous Prison and requested her father's release. Bribing officials with her last remaining pieces of jewelry, she was able to secure her father's freedom. Joined with her mother and a young fellow townsman, the two tracked across the Alps for safety in Switzerland. Shortly later, she would make her return to Austria. Ginsburg swore to avenge her father. She became an active gunrunner for the United States Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to the CIA. In the war's waning years, she enrolled as a resistance spy. Her work during mission Operation Sunrise was instrumental in forcing Italy's surrender. Her efforts secured the clause that prevented cultural treasures, such as Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, from becoming one more casualty of the battle scarred country. After the war, she headed for Hollywood with her husband Otto Coleman. The couple found a remarkable success as the songwriting duo, hitting records for such stars as Rosemary Clooney, Nat King Cole, and Dean Martin including his Try Again, the song we played at the beginning of the show. The marriage helped create at least one standard, que sera, sera. The passive mindset of whatever will be, will be was a complete opposite of Ginsburg's personal spirit. Ginsburg was the agent of her own fate. Ginsburg did not let shifting musical tastes or advanced age stop her from pursuing her dreams. In 2013, she released the latest chapter of her musical career, Debuting at the Eurovision Song Contest, Ginsburg rebranded herself as the frontwoman for a doom metal band called Inge and the Tritone Kinks. With her traumatic background, it's not that surprising that she related to a more macabre sound. It is surreal to hear a 92-year-old woman growl out lines about worms chewing her flesh. While eliminated from the preliminary rounds of the contest, her rock and roll quest continued all the way to her last days. A lifetime of bravery, creativity, and perseverance ended on July 20th, 2021. It's hard to find one word to capture all the fascinating turns throughout Ginsburg's nine years, but she certainly made the most of them.
0: Don't feel, like cheap. Don't feel asleep. Be awake. The you must Hi, this is Jeff Youngman, and with me is the son of heavy metal grandpa, Nate Youngman. As Nate said in his intro, this is our first New Year episode, and we're going to talk about New Year, New Me, Act One. Born turban wild You pick the
1: best of both worlds Mix it all
0: together and you know that's the best of both worlds Panama Montana never existed The fictional character was a creation built to strut on television sets in a parade of disguises. For a person who never physically held a microphone, Hannah Montana scored an impressive streak on the Hot 100. I gotta get me a new writer. I can't believe I'm talking about Hannah Montana. The alter ego of Miley Cyrus is arguably the most well-known caricature in pop history, but it was hardly the only one. Artists throughout the years have expanded their repertoire far beyond the name on their driver's license. David Bowie brought glam to the public with the alien rocker Ziggy Stardust. Prince dabbled in transgressive cosplay when he performed as a feminine Camille. In an inexplicable stat for chart buffs, the only top 40 pop hit the second best selling artist of all time, Garth Brooks, ever had was as the emo flopper Chris Gaines. Yo Kanye, imma let you finish, but I have to issue a belated fact check. Sasha Fierce had one of the best videos of all time with her number one smash single ladies. Now I really gotta get me a new writer. While all these singers treated their alter egos as a costume that they could slip on and off from time to time, One person never allowed people to utter his true name. The desire to blend into the background accidentally led to one of the most notable people of the early 50s. Buried under a turban and false identity, he had a secret life that no one knew. It is our pleasure to present to you Corla Pend. Before Liberace, there was Korla Pandit. He was billed as a pianist from New Delhi, India. He dazzled national audiences from 1949 to 1953 with his unique keyboard skills and exotic compositions on the Hammond B3 organ. He appeared on Los Angeles local television in 900 episodes of his show, Korla Pandit's Adventures in Music. He was smartly dressed in a suit and tie or in a silk brocade Nehru jacket and cloaked in a turban adorned with a single shimmering jewel. The mysterious spiritual Indian man with his hypnotic gaze and slide grin was transfixing. Pandit's show was popular with folks who ironically were into tiki torches and vintage cocktails. Folks who wanted to overlook rock and roll or step into a time machine and come back before rock and roll first existed. His work, cheesy as it could get, transcended kitsch. He knew how to play to the camera and reach his audience with his galvanizing eyes bolstered with a glittering jewel. He took the organ, an unpopular instrument associated with soap operas and roller skating rinks, and made it sexy and magical. Off stage, Corla was known as the godfather of exotica. He was living the American dream. He had a house in Hollywood Hills, a beautiful blonde wife, two kids, and a social circle that included Errol Flynn and Bob Hope. He even had his own floral decorated organ float in the Rose Bowl parade in 1953. And Corla Pandant had reason to never speak. Speaking might have given away his secret. As legend has it, Corla was a child prodigy born in New Delhi to a Brahmin priest and a French opera singer. When he was 11, Corla was sent away to England and then to America for classical training at the University of Chicago. Pandit never admitted to anyone that he was not actually Indian. He was born John Roland Red in St. Louis in 1921. The life Pandit invented closely mirrored his real one. John Roland Red was one of seven children born into a musical family. His father was a Baptist minister, his mother was of Creole ancestry, but more importantly his talent was real. Relatives interviewed recalled that at age three, John could learn a song once and have it memorized. In 1940, Pandit moved to Los Angeles. He began playing jazz and R&B, but quickly realized he could make more money playing Latin tunes as Juan Rolando. Passing as Mexican, he was able to join the Whites Only Musicians Union. Soon he was playing supper clubs and lounges on top of a gig providing eerie background music for the Chandu Musician Occult Radio Show. Then as Cactus Pandit, he played for Roy Rogers' cowboy singing group, The Sons of the Pioneers. When I lay me down at night, and the prairie stars are bright, I am
1: dreaming of the land beyond the sun.
0: As Corla Pandit, Red had found a winning formula. In 1948, he was offered a television show. It was the first all-music program on television. And the fascinating thing was that passing for an Indian worked wonders for him. He was the first black man to have his own TV show. He became an overnight star. However, after a contract dispute in 1953, Pandit was replaced with another eccentric pianist who had also had a secret, Liberace. Soon he'll be there at your side. Liberace used the same sets and took credit for his staring into a camera and breaking the wall just as Pandit had already done. Five years later, in 1956, Corlett Pandit went north to San Francisco for another show. During this time, he also recorded 13 albums for fantasy records. As Corla's career waned in the 60s, he was relegated to playing supermarkets and pizza palaces, teaching piano and occasionally attending speaking engagements as a spiritualist. In the 90s, near the end of his life, the Tiki Torch Lounge music revival gave Corla one last career resurgence and a cult following. He recorded with The Muffs and made a cameo appearance in the movie Ed Wood. One of his last performances was a sold-out show at the legendary Bimbos 365 Club in San Francisco. John Roland Red died in Petaluma, California, on October 2, 1998. Two years after Red's death, R.J. Smith, a magazine editor in Los Angeles, published an article revealing Red's true ancestry. Red may have been a fraud, but he was a spiritual optimist. One person who grew up watching Corleone Pandit remarked at his death He opened vortexes. Anything seemed possible when he pressed the keys. Any dimension, any identity, any form, any triumph. That man's name was Carlos Santana. You're listening to WHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio.
1: All right, Dad, great story. Panned it? Well, like, praised it. <laughs> I still need to talk to my writers. All right, now it's time for my act. Close to you, F-O.
0: Woo! All right, y'all, the year is
1: 1997. Men in Black is a fresh cultural phenomenon. The movie is jumping off the screen because of its simple message. Nothing is what it seems. The movie drives that theme home with a bunch of bug-eyed weirdos. Tony Shalhoub has no head. Vincent D'Onofrio is a cockroach. Our universe is a marble. It's great, I love it. But the person with the biggest secret identity is the handsome star dominating the screen. Men in Black blasted Will Smith into stratospheric levels of fame. The sitcom actor successfully pivoted to movies and music with his debut single, the title track of his breakout vehicle, Men in Black. The year is 1973. Prague rockers clout Two on nobodies who everybody thinks is a somebody. The band released their debut record to middling praise and sales. In a reasonable world, the story ends there. Just one more band that never quite made it. An unreasonable world latches on. The fluky rumor percolates around the group. Crackpot scoured the songs for any tangential proof that the band is something more than they are. Listeners want to believe that Cloud 2 is the biggest band in history. Inevitably, they make that partially true. Their anonymity turned them into a household name and just as quickly threw them back out of the spotlight. <laughs> The is 1976, Karen and Richard Carpenter, to quote, one of their many hits, are on top of the world. Since their Grammy win for Best New Artist in 1971, they have released six top ten albums and notched twelve top ten hits. Velo's those climbed all the way to number one. That success breeds imitators. Karen's wholesome coos and Richard's starry-eyed production set the template for early 70s soft rock boom. As the embodiment of easy listening, Critics dismiss the brother and sister do are as saccharine dorks. A frustrated Richard Carpenter proposes the band change up the sound. With his gold-played track record success, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> the year is 1953. Albert K. Bender is staring at a clock. It's all he ever does. Bender was obsessed with slowing down the universe. Every 15 minutes, his workshop rang out in a deafening scream as dozens of synchronized alarms chimed in unison. He swore that someday he would control time. He never did turn the past, but he still shaped the future. In a circuitous route of conspiracies real and imagined, Bender left his imprint on pop culture and lexicon forever. He changed our world and maybe a few others. From the outset, Albert K. Bender gave the appearance of normalcy. He kept to himself in a cozy Connecticut estate, He served as a technician for the Army in World War II, and he worked for Acme Shears, the world's largest manufacturer of scissors. A visit to his workplace would quickly end that impression. Bender adorned his cramped studio with animal skulls, shrunken heads, and taxidermied bats that would fall out of the ceiling. A record in the corner hissed unnerving Halloween sound effects featuring thunder, rattling chains, and murderous screams on loop.
0: And this was you around?
1: Yeah. Okay. Visitor described it as a chamber of horrors. The lifelong New Englander, believed the region's ancestral witchcraft flowed through his blood. America was primed to share Bender's fascination with the occult. In the early days of the nuclear age, fear gripped the already paranoid population. At the same time, a series of unexplained UFO sightings in the southwest threw the country into a panic. Bender needed to find answers to the mysterious phenomenon. In 1952, he launched the International Flying Saucer Bureau one of the earliest organizations exclusively dedicated to studying alien sightings. The group issued a monthly newsletter of recent encounters and offered potential theories for the seemingly inexplicable events. Under Binder's tenure, the Bureau grew to 600 worldwide members. By 1953, Binder was talking about building a new headquarters to accommodate the rapidly expanding operation. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, the magazine closed without telling anyone. IFSB was plagued with problems from the start. Bender kept reporting odd occurrences around the office. He was hounded by ill health, strange, silent phone calls, and an encroaching sense that he was being watched. By November 1952, it was no longer just a feeling. That fall, Bender went to a matinee show at a local movie theater. A stranger sat in a corner. The cloaked figure eyes glowed a bluish tint. Bender ran home terrified. The showery man stood by him in the doorway. Home was no sanctuary. A sickening stench of burning sulfur filled the attic. Blue incandescent orb floated by his windows. Bender felt his own thoughts turn against him. No place was safe. This was all a preface for his worst encounter yet. July 1953 Three pale, wiry gentlemen dressed in black knock on the door. The dark clad figures barge in and flash credentials. They interrogated Bender about his research. For his part, Bender refused to speak. Neither did the gentleman. They used mental telepathy to order Bender to stop publishing immediately or suffer the consequences. To show they meant business, they levitated Bender above the ground and dropped him with a thud. Yeah. All copies of his magazine were confiscated. The strangers dematerialized in the yellow sulfuric fog. A year and a half after its founding, the magazine released its final issue in October 1953. It ended with this cryptic warning. The mystery of flying saucers is no longer a mystery. The source is already known. We advise those who engage in saucer work to be very cautious. In 1956, Albert Bender finally was willing to come forward with his bizarre tale. Fellow IFB worker Gary Barker recounted Bender's experience in the book. They knew too much about flying saucers. There, Bender coined a phrase that has become synonymous with conspiracy lore itself. Men in black. The agents were nothing like Tommy Lee Jones or Will Smith. They were monstrous aliens wearing a fleshy disguise. But Bender fought back. He traveled to the secluded edges of an Anarka, Jumped in an interdimensional portal and traveled to the home planet of Kossack. And this is where he did perhaps the weirdest thing of his whole life. He quit. He never talked about aliens again. <laughs>
0: That's the first sane thing <laughs> I've heard the whole time you've yeah. been
1: talking. He moved to California and lived something resembling a normal life. Despite his um, interesting stories, <laughs> Bender did not struggle finding followers among Hollywood's elite. He hobnobbed with major celebrities like John Wayne, Vivian Lee, Otto Preminger, Fred Astaire, and Vincent Price. But his dearest relationship was with Max Steiner, the pioneering film score composer for Golden Age classics like King Kong, Wind, and Casablanca. Bender became one of Steiner's major patrons. It was a good bet. Seven years after Binder was flying high in the saucer, Steiner was flying high in the charts. In 1960, Percy Faith's cover of the steiner pin theme from The Summer Place became the longest running number one of the year. Steiner basically repeated the feat 18 years later. In 1978, Summon Places Melody was sampled for that year's longest-running number one, Night Fever by the Bee Gees. The night fever, the night fever. Don't show it. Right as one 70s juggernaut stormed the charts, another was in retreat. Bender's research again played a role. Bender wanted the rest of humanity to help him greet our interstellar neighbors. He prompted readers with an audacious request. Participants were to memorize a formal letter he wrote. On March 15, 1953, all participants were told to leave their homes and head for an open field. At precisely 6 o'clock, they would tilt their foreheads to the stars and silently recite the following phrase. Calling occupants of any planetary craft that have been observing our planet Earth. We of IFSB wish to make contact with you. We are your friends. Bender was sure that if hundreds of IFSB members simultaneously projected their consciousness into the void, alien life might someday communicate back. Dubbed Ward Contact Day, Bender's disciples still gather each March 15th to beam their noble pledge into the cosmos in the hope that someone out there might hear. But back on Earth, some people certainly were listening. 20 years later, prog rock band Klaatu incorporated Bender's words into the only top 40 hit, calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Upon release, The Single Languished in Obscurity, a weird song by a weird group. Like the thought waves in space, it took a while before anyone paid attention. On February 17th, 1977, Steve Smith, a young journalist for Rhode Island newspaper, The Providence Journal, needed a new segment. He fished a record of the newspaper, Reject bin The Writer of View. Piqued by the smiling sun on the cover, he dis-eagerly grabbed a copy of Cloud2's first album, 347 Eastern Standlight Time. He spun the record without a thought. Bored, he tried to pass the time by reading the line of notes. The only problem was, there were none. The sleeve had no lyrics, photos, credits, or information about the group. Smith contacted the band's distributors, Capital Records. The Capitol suits refused to disclose anything. Smith wondered why there was so much secrecy for a no-name group. Then it dawned on him, maybe they weren't a known group. Maybe they were the biggest name in music history. He re-listened with New Year's. It was now clear. Two was secretly the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> Released seven years after the group's breakup, Smith heard the Fab Four's fingerprints all over the records. The vocals were obviously Paul, the drumming had the classic Ringo feel, and the guitar work sounded exactly like Blue Jay Way period George Harrison. When he called Capitol to confirm his suspicions, they said, Two is just a mystery group. Quite the auspicious word. The denial was all the proof he needed. He published the headline, Could Cloudto be the Beatles? Mystery is a magical tour. The article started Cloud2 mania. The Beatles fans longed for any new material from the group rated record stores to get their hands on a copy. Conspiracy theorists snatched up 20,000 copies a day in the United States trying to find any hints. The mystery pushed the album all the way to number 32 on the Billboard Top 200. Eagle-eyed fans further decoded more subtle clues. I'm going to run down some of the main ones right now and tell me what you think. The record was sent out by Capitol, the label that distributed Beatles albums in America. Oh,
0: well, that's true. They did that.
1: Yeah. Like the Beatles, Cloud 2 recorded with London Philharmonic Orchestra.
0: So did the Moody Blues. Okay.
1: The album begins with... <whistles> now, what are crickets, if not musical Beatles?
0: No, no. Yeah, right. That's a stretch.
1: The album cover has a rising sun, like Here Comes the Sun.
0: How about the animal's house of the rising mm-hmm. sun? Uh-huh.
1: This is my favorite. The sleeve of Ringo Starr's 1974 solo album, Goodnight Vienna, features a drummer standing aboard a spaceship next to the alien antagonist from the 1951 science fiction classic, The Deity of Stood Still. The name of that alien? Klaatu. I
0: don't think yeah. it proves anything.
1: If you thought that was a stretch, take a look at the album's name, 347. We can read those numbers two ways. It's either the number of letters in each word and a phrase, the fake beetles. Oh, please. <laughs> or a more symbolic read is that seven is the number of letters in the beetles. So three and four are the group breaking up because three plus four equals seven, and seven is them returning as a whole.
0: No, no, <laughs> not even close.
1: All right, you thought that was tenuous? Get a load of this. So one song of the album is called Sir Bodsworth Rubblesby. And I'm sure that means nothing to a sheeple like you. No, it doesn't mean anything. So let's break it down word by word. So Sir, it's a noble title, like how Thee is also a title. That's true. Moving on. (laughs) Bodsworth. Bods means bodies, meaning people. You
0: can't can't even say it, right?
1: (laughs) Worth, meaning importance. So, so far we have important people. And our last word, Rubblesby, can be broken down into Rubbles and Buy. Rubbles is rocks, like in a quarry. "By" is, now hear me out, the word "by." So <laughs> yeah. No tricks there. Anyways, you end up with the phrase, the important people by quarries. Further decipher that, the Quarrymen. Yeah, I knew that was The coming. original name yeah, for the band. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, slam dunk. Boom, shakalaka. <laughs> they're the Beatles. All right. Now, if Evan is that strong, it's no wonder everyone was so convinced. The hype crashed down in a rather boring way. Dwight Douglas, the program director for WWDC, went to the Library of Congress and visited the Copyright Register. Instead of Lennon, McCartney, Harrison, and Starkey, the names on the foreign were John Woodchuck, D-Long, and Terry Draper. As soon as the truth came out, the media backlash was immense. The fan base abandoned them. Every album sold less and less numbers until they finally matched the Beatles in one way. They broke up. Now, one of the people who got swept up in the brief to fervor was Richard Carpenter. Carpenter loved the Albert K. Bender memorial track calling occupants of an implanted craft. Not only did he appreciate the inspirational plea to reach a hand out into the stars, he thought it was just a song to save his career. By the tail end of the 70s, the Carpenter's incredible streak of syrupy hits was starting to stall. Both Karen and Richard blamed their slowed fortunes on the public personas. They resented their unfair reputation as sentimental snoozefests. They wanted a clear break from the public image that paved their course on the hit parade. Karen singing about aliens should do the trick.
0: Oh yeah, that was a great career move there.
1: Calling Occupants was the second single to duo release after 1977 album Passages. Though it received substantial airplay in Europe, the record was a disastrous, critical, and commercial bomb stateside. The ill-fated record proves to not tamper with a working formula. The desire to shake up the sound fumbles in many misguided choices. The record opens with sweet, innocent Karen going on a satirical racist rant about how her Ecuadorian maid needs to learn English. Three minutes of runtime are eaten up by introducing Communist radicals to preface Karen's take on Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. It remains the only Carpenter's album to feature vocals by Che Guevara. (laughs) By the time Karen tries her hand on a Hey Belafonte Calypso track, the alien song is pretty low on a list of problems. The streak as hitmakers was over. Passengers was the first Carpenter's album to not go gold or feature a top 20 hit. The band never returned to the top 10. They functionally retired. Six years later, Karen died of heart failure at the far too young age of 32. Public taste is a fickle thing a momentary reinvention could forever rewrite your career. but will Smith, a mid-career change launched him into a level of superstardom that still carries him to this day. Any amount of talent Claudio had could never live up to the identity others forced upon them. The cheery public image has secured the carboard a spot in the top with as much an asset as an anchor. their attempted rebranding all but ushered their end. maybe those flying objects had the right idea. it's good to be unidentified. And the said, we world contact day.
0: All right, Nate. Great show. I agreed with everything you said. Hey, wait a sec. I didn't write that. While I go check this out, Nate, do you have anything to close us with?
1: Why, yes, I do, Dad. Our stories so far have been about people who made a career out of changing careers. We're going to close out for a person who did not have much say in the matter. His new life seems to have been ordained by God himself. The majority of Tony Sicoria's life was spent pursuing one important, if not particularly glamorous profession, orthopedic surgery. Start not a career one chooses half-heartedly. By the time he earned his bachelor's degree, passed the MCAT, graduated medical school, enrolled in residency, and passed a licensing fellowship, nearly half of his 42 years was spent working towards his one goal. Then in an instant, he threw it all away. To be fair, it wasn't really his choice. In 1994, Secorio had a grand old time at a family picnic. Yet, a nagging thought would not let him enjoy his fun. He felt bad that his elderly mother could not attend the mixer. The gathering dispersed as storm clouds booed over the horizon. He still had enough time checking on his mom. He left for a payphone and a dial number. While talking into the receiver, a young woman knocked on the door, urging him to wrap up the call. Soaked from the rain, she needed a dry place to seek shelter. Zocorio tried to hang up the phone, but his mom was not quite through chatting. I can sympathize with that plight. Eventually, his mother ran out of random things to talk about. He set the phone back on the receiver, all set the head out. And then... (laughs) Lightning struck the booth. The metal frame jumped with electricity. The stored energy kicked through his nerves. He landed out on the pavement. For a moment, he recalls flying backwards, his ethereal spirit floating over the bewildering sight of his charred lifeless body. Luckily, that inpatient bystander next in line was a registered nurse. The woman performed CPR. His spirit flew back into his earthly vessel. He lived again, but not the life he knew before. One does not get smoked by the heavens and walk away unscathed. In fact, he found it hard to walk at all. He went to physical therapy for a while, and there were still some lingering side effects. He would have occasional memory slips and forget the names of diseases, surgical procedures, and long friends. But perhaps the weirdest side effect was an intense craving to listen to Frederic Chopin. Before the incident, Sequoia was completely ambivalent about the manic composer, yet he could not help himself from cranking out the minute waltz. You know, sometimes you gotta let the fret out, oh yeah. The once indifferent surgeon felt an overpowering urge to play the piano, an instrument he never touched before. Wherever he went, classical music echoed in his head. One night, he dreamed of himself performing in a world class opera house. He awoke in shock, music still ringing in his skull. He jumped out of bed to write the sketch of the melody he could remember. Music flowed through him like the current once did. Despite being unable to read music, he had somehow had the innate ability to compose as he played. He became convinced that the lightning bolt was a sign from God, directing him to dedicate his life to the piano. Fourteen years later, Tony walked out onto a New York stage and played his debut composition to an audience of thousands. Logically, this piece was called the Lightning Sonata. An astounding feat for someone whose talent came virtually like a bolt out of the blue.